0: This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Club W. Why don't you be fun, not pretentious? Start learning as you drink at ClubW.com slash weeds, and you'll get 50% off your first order. That's ClubW.com slash weeds. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds to stream the inexplicable universe, Unsolved Mysteries, absolutely free. That's the slash weeds.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: They like things that are very small and mushy. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds, Boxes Policy Podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Glacius with me as usual, my colleague Sarah Cliff, Ezra Klein, who are both wearing Vox t-shirts. Which Always is, on
2: brand. Which yeah, is lovely. What, what are you, yeah, why are you not
0: wearing a Vox t-shirt? I thought t-shirt? we wore those shirts on Fridays. Guys.
2: No, on Wednesday we
1: wear a Vox. It's an election. It's like a Friday of American politics. All right.
0: Yeah, so we, we just wrapped up last night working late on the uh, what the cable networks are perversely calling a second Super Tuesday.
1: I want it called Superb Tuesday.
0: I want to call it Two super Tuesday. Uh,
2: (laughs) I have no preferred name, but those are both terrible.
0: (laughs) Anyway, a number of states voted in primary elections. Missouri, North Carolina, Florida, Illinois, Ohio, and Hillary Clinton cleaned up on the Democratic side, and Donald Trump cleaned up pretty handily on the Republican side, but John Kasich won his home state of Ohio, which has made by far the most ridiculous primary campaign strategy that anyone launched this cycle actually appear vindicated, at least for one
1: week. I I do not agree that John Kasich, winning his home state with no plausible path to the nomination, vindicates his campaign strategy. I do not think that's what the word vindicates means.
0: He he, he (laughs) delivered on his stated strategy of placing second in New Hampshire, losing a bunch more states, then winning Ohio, which is winner take all. And now he's the last establishment-friendly candidate standing. And... I mean, yes. Something it's we should say, say there is Marco
1: that... Rubio dropped out last night. Yes, yeah. That, that's an important yes. part of that last establishment yes, candidate part standing. Yes,
0: that's part of Kasich's successful strategy. <laughs> so Rubio is out. Although Rubio has more delegates than Kasich and might Kasich have delivered
1: can... Ohio to Kasich by telling Rubio told Rubio voters in Ohio to vote for Kasich to deny Donald Trump a win there. It's possible Kasich only won because Rubio nobly. Killed himself off in Ohio to to hand Kasich that win. We're not sure though. I don't. I've yeah, really I mean, looked I so deep in the numbers. Clear. To make I mean, that sure.
0: Rubio became very unpopular.
1: Yeah, he went two he point. Out. When I last left it last night, and last looked at the Ohio results, I think he was at two point five percent in Ohio. I mean, in theory, his people had gone to Kasich, but it's pretty sad to see it on a screen.
0: Yeah. So so John Kasich is a fellow who has not been discussed much over the course of this primary.
1: And I think he should stay that way.
0: <laughs> really, I feel like we're going to be hearing a lot about John Kasich over over yeah. the next uh, couple of weeks until people realize that he's doomed. But he's he's prime for like a false dawn as somehow Republicans. Well, the thing is, Republicans would like to believe that Donald Trump has not already won the nomination.
1: My view on what happened last night is hillary clinton had the greatest night virtually anyone has ever had in american politics she not only by winning ohio and florida basically foreclosed bernie sanders path to the nomination it is very 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 difficult to see i mean we're, we're at the point where we're saying very 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 difficult and what we mean by that is that if hillary clinton gets arrested it's possible bernie sanders could win the nomination or she gets indicted i mean she would have to do something that collapsed her poll numbers everywhere in a way that there's no current precedent for in the campaign so it looks like she got the nomination last night but it also looks like she is now in a position where she is almost certainly going to face donald trump or ted cruz in the in the general election and i think it's easy to forget how important that side of it is but Look, we don't know what will happen in American politics, but Trump or Cruz are the kinds of candidates who, if the normal rules of a general election apply, if politics works even remotely the way we think it does, create the possibility of Hillary Clinton not just winning, but winning a landslide victory, winning the kind of victory that would win back the Senate for Democrats. She is, I think, in many ways, a a weak candidate, but she has drawn potentially the weakest general election opposition we've seen in, in a couple generations. It's an incredible space for her to be in. I mean, it, it, it takes something that looked like a grinded out victory with very little hope of governance on the other end, and at least creates an outside chance of a pretty different political equilibrium in 2017 than we had come to expect.
2: Although that assumes politics working as normal, which, it su- which 2016 does not seem to be a case for that year. And this is something we've talked about on the podcast before. But one of the things I'm curious how you both think about this is if we end up with a Trump nominee, kind of like how, what happens to mobilize Like, does Hillary have this like landslide space? Or do you see all these people who have been turning out for Trump? I think we, you know, we as in the people sitting at this podcast, we as in the media really underestimated the number of people who are going to support Trump. You can see like headlines on our website, headlines like wherever, you know, saying that he wouldn't get there. One of the things I don't know how to have a good grasp on is whether we're still underestimating those numbers or not, like whether the movement as people see, oh, this guy can actually win, like I'm going to be part of this movement. You know, there's going to be the counter mobilization on the Democrat side. I don't know how big Trump's mobilization can get. And I feel like I'm in a really poor place to try and estimate that right now.
1: There is no one, um, I think, who follows American politics uh, or very few people anyway who when this topic of Trump comes up doesn't have a, a bit of self doubt in them right i mean as you say we called trump pretty badly at the beginning that said if i had to bet if you put a if you put a gun to my head and force me to lay down money i would say we are currently way overestimating his appeal in the general election i do not think that 30 to 40% of the republican primary voters supporting donald trump is something that we could or should or even know how to extrapolate to a general. I think Trump's negatives are incredibly, incredibly high. I mean, you can look at how the rest of the country is reacting to Donald Trump. And the way they're reacting to Donald Trump is they've decided they hate him. They hate him much more than they hate any other candidate in the race. And they're saying the same things that Republican primary voters are I think that the Republican Party itself will be pretty split about Donald Trump. I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of members, particularly of elite factions, which matters and kind of weighs on the margin in terms of what kind of press coverage Donald Trump gets and, and, and how much money he's able to raise, who really, really have decided they hate Donald Trump. I think that the the one of the big problems Hillary Clinton could have faced would be that she has not made Democrats all that enthusiastic. I think Democrats are incredibly enthusiastic to make sure Donald Trump does not get into the White House. I think it's unlikely that Trump is going to run a very tight campaign in terms of voter mobilization, in terms of get out the vote, in terms of data tracking, in terms of a lot of these other things. And while it's true that he's mobilized a lot of Republicans and he is winning the Republican primary – That mobilization is even on the Republican side had a counter-mobilization inside of it. So we say like, yes, Donald Trump has turned out all these new voters, but he's not winning states by 60 percent. He's winning them by 40. And so that means that he's also turning out people who, even within the Republican Party, really don't want to vote for Donald Trump. Matt has written about this a bit, and, and he should maybe reprise his argument here. But I think that Donald Trump is a very weak candidate for reasons that it is very hard for other Republicans to point out, but it is going to be very easy for a Democrat to point out. But I don't want to steal yeah, your argument I, I from you. Yeah, I think
0: you saw, when Marco Rubio had his brief, okay, I'm going hard at Donald Trump phase, and briefly sort of conservative pundits you know, were, were cheering him on, and it turned out to be a, a little bit of a, of a fiasco. And the problem that Rubio had was that it was difficult for him to make attacks on Donald Trump that had an actual point to them. And and I think this is like the biggest thing that like political operatives sometimes mess up is they get so in love with like their own zingers and their own one liners that they forget to like ask like well what is the point that we're trying to make here? So some of the stuff Rubio said about Trump, like oh he's wetting his pants or like he has a small penis was like clearly had no point at all. <laughs> uh, other things that Rubio was saying
1: I think the point was that he was wetting his pants yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah he's like a small penis and incontinence. But but
1: uh, other things, fucking Ru- this election, man. Other
0: things Rubio was saying about Trump potentially could have had a point to them. So, like Rubio said that Trump's business was not as impressive as people said it was. Rubio said that Trump's business was in many ways operating scams and cheating people, and that Trump was rich because he'd inherited all this money. Those are attacks that should be good attacks to make on a rich businessman who's running for president based on his business qualifications. But Marco Rubio and the Republican Party are ideologically committed to defending inherited wealth and a lack of business regulation. so. Those are good punches, but they have a certain like, so what element to them. But Hillary Clinton, or not just Hillary Clinton, like any Democrat will have no problem saying so what. They will say, look, this is a guy who inherited a lot of money from daddy, reinvested it in ripping people off. Now, I'm running to stop spoiled rich kids from ripping people off. But not just Donald Trump, but the whole Republican Party is trying to help spoiled rich kids rip people off, right? And again, and give themselves huge tax cuts. Right, give huge tax cuts to themselves. Again, the absolute most obvious thing, I, I, I was talking to a, a guy no, and he said, you know, I like a lot of what Donald Trump's saying about China. But I can't vote for him because it seems like he hates black people. This is a black guy. Um, that, That is correct, right? So the number one most baseline obvious complaint you would want to make about Donald Trump is that he is a white racist and that that is wrong, morally speaking. Most Americans believe that white racism is bad. It's really not clear that most Republicans agree with that. Most Republicans appear to believe that reverse racism against white people is a bigger problem than white racism. So, if Marco Rubio, a Latino guy, was to go get into an argument with Donald Trump where he's like, hey man, you're a racist, and Trump was like, no, you're politically correct, <laughs> that's winning for Trump. In a Republican primary, but it's losing for Trump in a general election. I mean, it's just like the difference between a primary and a general election is that primary voters sometimes have weird and unpopular notions. And the weird and unpopular notion that self-identified Republicans have is that white people are an oppressed minority group in the United States. And Trump gives voice to that idea, which makes him popular. But the reason other Republican politicians have not campaigned explicitly on that idea is that it's it's really unpopular. And you're not going to win In an election that way. And I think another thing worth noting is that there are people in politics, labor union people, and people in the sort of labor faction of the Democratic Party, who have a vested interest in sort of talking up Trump's general election prospects, because they agree with Trump on the merits about trade. And they are trying to alarm Democrats into the idea that they need to poach Trump's trade message, just stop him from winning huge white working class victories in in the Rust Belt. So like that's one main reason you're hearing some of these like don't underestimate Trump stories, because the last thing those people want is to hear totally underestimate Trump. All Hillary needs to do is put forward a moderate tone on business issues, and affluent Republican women will either not show up or vote for her, and she'll win in a landslide, because that's just not the campaign they want to see Hillary run, but it will work. Practically almost anything Hillary does will work, I think. (laughs) Like a lot of you, we at The Weeds, we really love learning new things, and that's why we really love The Great Courses Plus video learning service. It gives you unlimited access to this enormous library of The Great Courses lecture series in all kinds of topics, science, philosophy, history, cooking, whatever. Uh, We love The Great Courses Plus, and they're giving our listeners an incredible opportunity right now. You can watch one of their most popular courses, The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, absolutely free. The Inexplicable Universe is presented by the well-known, well-respected astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's exploring some of the universe's biggest mysteries. He takes these sort of really complicated physics topics, black holes, quantum foam, string theory, he breaks them down, he makes it understandable. It's like what we try to do, but, you know, for for physics and, and astronomy. And for just a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream this course, Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, that's a $95 value, and hundreds of other courses for free. But this free offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's com slash weeds.
2: So I think I generally agree with you guys that Hillary, like, running against Trump is good for her. But I don't want to fully dismiss the idea of Trump outperforming in the way he has in the primaries. And I think, like, the way I see it playing out is that, you know, you kind of see Trump, he says a lot of crazy, insane things, some of them are quite racist, but he also releases these policies that are pretty like shruggy Republican, like exhibit A is Trump care, the plan to make health care reform great again. And you this kind of never Trump movement gets tested a lot, where it's tested again, like, do we want a Democrat or do we want a guy who says some crazy things? But like here and there he's like generally adopting like a lot of our policies. Like I think the Supreme Court nomination that we will know when this podcast comes out, but since we are not in the future, we do not know yet, might be a key test of this, where, you know, you kind of look at who Obama would nominate, presumably someone liberals would support, and what kind of candidate would stop that kind of nomination and look for someone else. And I think there's a space, I don't think it's the most plausible outcome, but I think it's not one to be ignored, where you see people kind of coming around to the idea of Trump as less offensive than they might have thought at the start especially as we have this kind of long space where Republican leadership doesn't really speak up against him where they kind of like sit on the sidelines kind of like as Matt mentioned in his piece you know earlier today about the, how the Republican establishment has been a key part of Trumpism and I don't I don't think that's the most likely scenario but I think it's a scenario that's out there that is not you know implausible to me
1: so let me make a similar argument from a slightly different direction so I think there's one version of this in which Trump ends up running much closer to generic Republican than we think, which I think is sort of the scenario you're laying yes. out. I think that is still a pretty good scenario for Hillary Clinton, because right now the conventional wisdom about presidential campaign demographics are that if both the Democrat and the Republican just run at near normal potential, Democrat will have the very slight edge. I think the Trump argument and, and I look, we don't know if it's true, but it might be true is that he upends the chessboard in an important way, that he has some catalytic combination of authenticity and racial resentment and economic populism and a couple other things that bring out a world of disaffected white voters – who deliver him places like Ohio and Pennsylvania. I mean, the fact that he didn't win Ohio is, I think, actually a little bit important here. Obviously, Kasich is a home state player, but nevertheless, Trump won Florida over Marco Rubio. But that Trump is somehow not able to just run as generic Republican, but he's able to goose white turnout, particularly downscale whites, in a way that we really haven't seen before. You hear a sort of version of this argument every election cycle with the candidate that is unlikely to win the general election, right? I mean, there's a version of his argument with Bernie Sanders, which is that he would be able to manifest a kind of political revolution that would change I mean, the it's normal literally laws. Literally of...
0: the same argument.
1: I mean, yes. it's different people a little bit, right. but you you heard it previously. I mean, to be fair, Barack Obama did to some degree actually make this happen, right? He did. He really radically increased turnout among groups that already you know, were, were expected to be for him, but, but it was much higher than usual. But you know, this was an argument around Howard Dean. I remember that being made. It's an argument in at another point around Pat Buchanan. It, it always is sort of lurking in the background because there's always this way as a political pundit to look at the roughly half of the country that doesn't turn out and say to yourself – to project yourself on them and say they're not turning out for the reasons I wouldn't turn out, which is they haven't found anyone they want to vote for. But I think that the data on these voters is often that they don't turn out because they're pretty apathetic about politics. They're just not that engaged. They're pretty loosely connected to the political system. They either don't like anybody or they don't feel that they want to vote for anybody. And they don't tend to be looking for a more extreme presidential candidate that this argument keeps getting Considered, And there's no real way to disprove it because it's always disproving a negative, but it never quite seems to pan out. And so a, a way I look at that is that I don't see the kind of turnout patterns for Donald Trump that would convince me something really different is going on. I mean, again, if Trump was pulling in 82% of the primary vote in these Republican primaries, I would reconsider that, right? These Republican primaries are pretty low turnout. I mean they're high turnout for Republican primaries, but they're low turnout for a general election. And so it would entirely be possible if Trump was having this kind of effect that he would swamp the Republican primaries with new voters, right? Because in theory, every one of these new people who are going to turn out are going to be you know, voting in these primaries. For Trump, it's unlikely there's ever going to be a point where Trump is getting more and better press coverage than he is right now. But that doesn't happen. Trump is getting enough extra turnout to sort of eke out wins. But his you know, path to the nomination is looking very standard. So I completely think you're right. I don't think we can. You can't ever count anybody out. But if I were to really then make the argument for Trump, I think it actually goes from the opposite direction. I think Hillary Clinton has a fair amount of tail risk liability in her. I don't believe Clinton is going to be indicted. I think we'd have to see something that we don't expect to see in the email story to come out. But, you know, politics is politics. Things can happen that we don't know. She might have done things that we don't know. I think Clinton has made decisions that do create a certain amount of tail, uh, other kinds of tail risk in her candidacy. The speeches she gave to Goldman Sachs for $700,000 are one example of that. But, you know, Trump is going to try to run a campaign as Clinton will against him, by the way, but that is really based on Scandal And really based on making her seem like a corrupt tool of a political establishment. He'll try on attacks around Wall Street. He'll try on attacks around her husband's infidelities and alleged uh, sexual assault. He'll try on attacks about really anything he can find or think of. And it is possible that one of these attacks sticks and somehow blows up her campaign. It seems, again, very unlikely to me. But... I think that's actually the likeliest argument for Trump. It's not so much that he himself is able to change the rules of American politics but that he is such a good attacker. And he is so unburdened by the normal sort of rules of shame or decency or boundaries that we tend to put on American politicians that he is able to find a line of attack on Hillary Clinton that actually exposes a huge weakness and tortures her candidacy. Again, I don't think that will happen. But I think if I'm trying to imagine how I tell the story of a Trump win, that seems like the likeliest version of it.
0: Well, and even a slightly more restrained version of that. You can imagine a world in which Hillary Clinton, who is not really a super ideological person or or politician, gets the luxury of facing Donald Trump and running a not particularly ideological campaign against him that focuses heavily, heavily, heavily on like character attacks against Trump. But then Trump responds with heavy, heavy, heavy character attacks against Clinton, and you get a return to, frankly, the kind of politics we had in the 90s, which was very negative, very personality-focused, and produced very, very low voter turnout. Because I think one of the big findings is that like attack ads are not good at persuading people to come and vote for you, but they tend to take the shine off your opponent and demobilize people. And you could see a real sort of race to the bottom in terms of voter mobilization and turnout in a way that I think... To an extent, the fundamentals seem to favor Clinton on, just because Trump seems like he would be so weak in field and, and public image. But on the other hand, we normally think that a low turnout election favors Republicans. That like in 2014, basically nobody in the United States voted. And so Republicans elected governors in Massachusetts and Illinois and Maryland and like all kinds of super liberal places. It seems like we're heading toward a campaign that, in that sense, would would lean toward a a Republican victory and that I think certainly will make Democrats regret that they didn't simply nominate somebody younger with a shorter record in public life who would have a more straightforward, like— I don't think Donald Trump should get a giant tax cut on himself and who the attacks on would be very blah. You know, someone like the the governor of Rhode Island, who I was reading about, and, like, I don't know, she's (laughs) 44. She obviously, in her 44 years on Earth, has just not done that much stuff. Um, And, like, there's not some extensive public record of statements she's made and, you know, various uh, controversies she's been involved with. And, like, it seems to me somebody like that, somebody... almost like blank slatey, but conventionally qualified would be a really, really strong candidate for the Democrats. But we've instead gotten really the person who has been in public life in a prominent way, like almost the longest of anybody, uh, maybe her husband. But really, she has now done more stuff, been secretary of state after her husband was president. And there's a sort of a reason she was able to turn that long tenure into this kind of dominance of the party infrastructure and then the nomination. But that's not a conventional actually background for a presidential candidate for for pretty good reason. And you've even seen in the primary, right? I mean, she's really struggled. Most of Sanders's best moments have involved sort of dragging up like issue controversies from 20 years ago or more in which, you know, she said and did things that were super anodyne, normal Democratic Party politicians for like the early 90s, but just sound wrong to young people in 2016. And other people would not have that problem. It's a it's unusual for for such a sort of veteran to to be a presidential candidate.
2: You're just looking for an American, Justin Trudeau. That's what. You see Justin Trudeau now
0: get over here and get in the race. Well, but, you know, like, I mean, that was Barack Obama, um, you know, and like it's that's like But this is one way.
1: This is one way in which actually Donald Trump also is a bit unusual. You can imagine a businessman campaign from like an actual real life businessman who had spent the last 30 or 40 years or, or however long just building a business and getting really rich. Yes. But. Donald Trump's business is he is a celebrity who licenses his name out to development projects and steaks and vodkas and magazines and whatever the fuck else you could possibly imagine, golf courses. And he, as such, has spent a lot of time increasing his celebrity. And so one odd thing about Trump, which would not be true if you were you know, nominating the guy who runs GE, is it Donald Trump also 20, 30 years ago was giving these insane interviews to Playboy, to anyone yes. who would listen to him, anyone who would talk about like Donald Trump's fight with Spy Magazine <laughs> about being a short fingered Bulgarian is like decades ago at this point. And so one thing I think is a little bit interesting is that during the 90s and the 80s, Hillary Clinton was trying to run a kind of moderate politics aimed at downscale white voters, right? That was a Clinton brand of politics. Yeah. And so there are things she said at that point about crime, about other kinds of cultural issues that don't sound good to liberals right now, but actually are probably fairly well tuned to specifically Donald Trump's audience, because Bill Clinton was very good at walking that line and, and his wife was walking it with him. Donald Trump, on the other hand, has been trying to create a celebrity of wealth of gluttony of luxury of of libertinism for a very 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 long time and so you saw a super PAC this week come out with this ad that just had women saying things Donald Trump has said about women including women you have to treat them like shit and it just goes on like that so one odd thing about Trump is that he also is not I think the normal kind of businessman you might imagine here where just he doesn't have that many statements in public life and so you know uh, and so he'll be able to run as a bit of a blank slate he also has this thing where he's been saying things that are kind of shocking and are not we not tuned to a political audience in the 80s in the 90s in the early 2000s and just as the gigantic opposition research machine the clinton's control tears through this stuff you know He's going to also have, I think, a lot to answer for. Well, also, until 2011,
0: it, he, he had actually made a number of statements about politics over the years that suggested he was a fairly liberal Democrat. He was totally pro-choice. He said that Hillary Clinton was an excellent Secretary of State, which seems relevant and was not that long ago, <laughs> frankly. Um, you know, he said that the single-payer health care system in Canada and Scotland work excellently, which is true. He, um, he did have a, a, a history of making sort of... Um, racially inflammatory comments. So that's like the the through line in his life. But he also, in 1999, which was like the first time he said he was going to run for president, he said that he was... um, had been interested in Ross Perot's reform party, but he was getting out because he didn't want to be associated with guys like Pat Buchanan because they were too racist. I don't really know how that kind of stuff plays, like if you want to touch it at all if you're a Democrat. I assume if you are Hillary Clinton and you're running for president against Donald Trump, you do want to bring up the fact that Donald Trump said you were a great secretary of state when you stepped down because, I don't know. (laughs) he's probably not going to say that in the general election, (laughs) but it's, it's weird, you know, and almost, you could see that the Republicans who were against him have been a little bit suffering from, I think, like a paradox of choice in terms of like, there's actually so many weak spots. When you're running a campaign, message discipline is important, so you sort of do have to like decide what argument you're going with in any given day, whereas Trump seems to have so many possible vulnerabilities, particularly from the Republicans, right? Who it's like sometimes I want to say he's a fake conservative, and like I'm not really sure, you know how you how you go about it. Although I know Democrats are, are running focus groups on on this thing, and I'm told that the the kind of thing in that women ad is very powerful, and that's probably the first thing they're going to go for.
2: Although one of the things we actually saw that's interesting in a poll that we just did that um one of my reporters, Alvin Chang, wrote about is that you don't trump supporters and i I think this is actually probably true of negative advertising in general they just aren't affected by any of the ads that run against him it's interesting to see you know we tested a number of attack ads on trump and each one of them you know democrats end up less favorable republicans end up slightly less favorable but like trump supporters it's kind of just like a shruggy and Mm -hmm. suggests that i think it speaks to like the lack of power of some of this advertising and, you know, the difficulty and one of the things I think we've learned about Trump supporters so far, and this might in a weird way cut against him in the general election, is that those who commit to voting for him really have done so far in advance, that they're like a very loyal group, that it is very difficult with um, whatever attack ads you're running to kind of take out whatever it is they like about Trump. It still stays there regardless of the attack. I, I think this... Kind of speaks to Ezra's point about a vulnerability in the general is that you do see other Republicans feel more negative about Trump after watching these kind of attack ads that have been coming out from Cruz, coming out from the Democrats. So that would likely cut against him. In one way, I almost feel like Trump is worst positioned for like a really aggressive opposition research battle just because Hillary has been so thoroughly vetted and attacked as she has run for office, you know, multiple times in her secretary of state tenure and you know over Benghazi it it seems like there is this long history but it's also been so aggressively explored already Mm -hmm. that it's hard for me to see like some new scandal coming out of it because she has been such a public figure Trump you know we weren't keeping as close of an eye on him. Like no one was like making as big of a deal about like his like small fingers in Spy Magazine or whatever in the 1990s. and the way that Clinton and you know her husband and the president were being very carefully watched. So I, I almost think she ends up doing better in an opposition research battle than than Trump, who has a lot going on that we haven't looked at yet. Would
1: I think that's right? And I think that to the poll to the poll we did, I think one of the interesting dimensions of a poll like that is it shows what money and politics and what advertising in politics can and cannot do, it is very difficult to change somebody's mind. It's just incredibly, incredibly hard to do that in politics. And in general elections in particular, where there's a ton of information, a ton of free media going to the two candidates, the press is covering them all the time, it's actually pretty hard for advertising to change many minds, particularly to supporters of the two candidates. So what ends up happening now is that the the campaigns, particularly very skilled campaigns, are incredibly capable of targeting advertisements at they, they know like down to the neighborhood level who might be undecided and what kinds of advertisements they might respond to, and they go right at them. This is considered by many people to be something that the Obama campaign did to tremendous effect with Romney in 2012, that that their data on an actual undecided voters was just much better than Mitt Romney's, and they hit those voters with the exact kinds of messages those voters needed to, to hear. Something I think is interesting is by fairly wide acclaim, Trump is running a winning campaign, but he's not running a very good campaign in terms of its underlying logistics. He doesn't have great voter data. He doesn't have great voter files, doesn't do great targeting, doesn't do great get out the vote. He does some stuff and he, and he's increasingly trying to catch up the, the Trump campaign compared to what it was doing in Iowa, which was almost nothing. At this point, it has much more sort of standard practices around it. And if he becomes a nominee, he's going to absorb some of the Republican infrastructure on these issues. And the RNC really has been investing in this stuff. But the Democrats in general are further along this line than the Republicans are. The Hillary Clinton campaign has been building these capabilities since day one. And so I think one thing that you know is, at least in my view from the evidence, I've seen worth a couple points in an election and a couple points in an election is an important thing. I think that you would see an unusually large discrepancy between the Clinton's campaigns capabilities and organizational effectiveness in terms of this kind of targeting, in terms of this kind of next generation campaign techniques versus Trump, who, you know, really, it was only a couple months ago that he was saying, I don't understand why my campaign should run polls. The media is running all these polls for free, which showed that he doesn't understand even why campaigns run polls, which isn't to see who's ahead, but to try to inform their own strategic decision-making. Donald Trump has a tendency to believe really, really bad, false information on the internet. He surrounds himself with with sycophants. I've always thought one of the really amazing moments of the Trump campaign was when he had to release his letter of physical fitness for the presidency, which is something all major presidential candidates do. So I go to a doctor and the doctor says, yeah, your your blood pressure is fine. This person is not likely to die on day three of the presidency. Donald Trump goes to this guy and he releases a letter that reads exactly like it was written by Donald Trump. And the person says, without and the doctor says, without question, Donald Trump would be the healthiest individual ever elected to the presidency, which obviously this doctor was not like giving physicals to Abraham Lincoln. The doctor says that Donald Trump's physical stamina and endurance are simply extraordinary. He says that his lab test results are astonishing. And what that said to me was that there are a lot of positions where maybe you want a buddy and a crony, a lot of positions where you want where, – where I can imagine why someone would have an underling or, or an employee – who maybe says what they want to hear and doesn't challenge him that much. There was a fun New York Times piece on Donald Trump's butler. And I think Donald Trump's butler appears to be a sort of Donald Trump sycophant. And that's fine. I think a reasonable it's a, good way,
2: trait for a butler. reasonable
1: way for a butler to act. But this is Donald Trump's doctor. This is a guy who is literally supposed to tell Donald Trump if he's doing something that will make him die. And Donald Trump is surrounded, has gotten himself a doctor who will just say whatever Donald Trump wants him to say. So one thing about how Donald Trump would run a campaign—in my piece, I talked about this for the presidency, but I think it's relevant to the campaign— is Donald Trump is not surrounding himself with talented people who can tell him when he's wrong and who he'll listen to. I think that's very clear at this point. And I don't think he's going to suddenly be able to do that during a campaign. I mean, something you really get a feel for when you read the literature on, on campaigns after the fact is how much of the management from the candidate actually matters, how much campaigns end up being a reflection of the candidate themselves. And I think Trump's campaign will end up being a reflection of the candidate's staffing tendencies. And the fact that Trump likes Likes to believe information that makes him think he's winning, that makes him think he's right, likes to surround himself with people who are like him, who like him and who will tell him what he wants to hear, and also just has no prior real experience in politics and no infrastructure that is battle tested across a number of different political situations to fall back on, I just think means he's going to end up running a kind of crummy campaign.
0: And then I, I would like to talk about these convention scenarios that are out there, even though I think we all find them unlikely. So if you're, if you're anything like me, then, you know, you enjoy drinking wine and, and you sort of know what you like. You, you know when you're enjoying a bottle. You know when you don't like it that much. But I'm not at least really like into the, the super details. I don't know all about, you know, who's got more tannins and, and what's the terroir. And sometimes, you know, I've had really good bottles recommended to me by, by knowledgeable friends. But when I'm sort of like alone there in the wine aisle, I just find myself confused, you know, picking things kind of at random. And with Club W, that guessing game is over. It's a, it's a personalized wine club. They ship wine directly to your door, and they don't just send it to you in a a convenient and affordable way, but you get wine that you're really going to love. What they do is they ask you a sort of simple six-question quiz that helps them understand what your palate is, and then they send you bottles that are are really tailored to your tastes. They're leading what they call a grape-to-glass wine revolution. That means they work directly with vineyards, they cut out the middleman, and it saves you money. And they even offer you a no-risk guarantee that you're going to love the bottles they send you or you get your money back. Uh, So right now, Club W is offering our listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash weeds. Why don't you be fun, not pretentious? Start learning as you drink at clubw.com slash weeds and you'll get 50% off your first order. That's clubw.com slash weeds. So... One way in which Trump's sort of relative inattention to field organizing and, and infrastructure is going to play into this is that something I think a lot of people don't realize is what it means when you have won delegates in a, in a primary. And so when Donald Trump uh, scores the, all 99 delegates of Florida by, by winning a plurality there, that means that Florida's 99 delegates are required to vote for him at the convention on the first ballot. But it doesn't mean that Donald Trump gets to sit down and pick which 99 people those are. Uh, Each state party has its own rules for selecting the individual human beings who become the delegates. In a handful of states, they do that in what sounds like the sensible way, which is let the candidate who won them pick the people. But in the vast majority of states, it's not like that. It's a state party process. And in the past, Ron Paul's campaign, which was a very obsessive, hyper-organized, hyper-high information group, has been able to sort of come in and control. Control a lot of state delegations in ways that have not wound up making a difference at the convention, but in theory sort of could make a difference. Uh, so it's very likely that when Trump sort of goes to Cleveland, to the convention, that Many of the delegates who are pledged to vote for him are not going to be for him. They're going to either be establishment people who wish it was like a Kasich or a Jeb or a Rubio or a Paul Ryan, or they're going to be Ted Cruz people because Cruz has that Paul-like, you know, super organized, super obsessive campaign. And there's considerable rule for for hijinks, and this is being discussed a lot on television in terms of, well, what if Donald Trump doesn't get to 50% plus one of the, of the delegates? And then they'll say, well, we'll have a brokered convention. But actually, the math has nothing to do with it. Uh, the convention comes in, and just like how Harry Reid changed the filibuster rule by coming in on the first day and saying, hey, we're changing the rules, the convention can make whatever rules it wants. The delegate pledging rules are not questionable of law there's no judicial recourse they are quote unquote pledged to vote for Donald Trump but if they just don't there's no consequence they're also pretty new
2: like it was only in the 1960s 1970s that we got to the rules that we have yeah. right now they're changeable and changeable in reaction to public events
0: but I mean not just changeable it's not just that they can change them perspectively right. like they can sit right. down in Cleveland right so like yes. Paul Ryan could Paul Ryan will chair the convention he can just come up and say let's modify Rule 60 so that delegates can vote for whomever they want. And, you know, they say, yay, let's vote for whoever we want. And then he can say, we think Jeb Bush should be the nominee. And they all go, yay, and then Jeb Bush is the nominee. And there's nothing in the convoluted explainers about convention rules that you're going to read that actually prevents them from doing that. They could write that.
2: That's a good It's it's coming. It's
0: coming. (laughs) Um, So the hardcore anti-Trump Republicans actually have a lot of – wishful thinking options they can entertain. I don't know how plausible or realistic any of them are, but certainly if he falls short of 50% of the delegates, there's going to be you know, fever for some plan to stop him.
2: That's definitely true, and I think, you know, especially when you look at some of the states Trump's winning, like Florida which he won last night where he gets all of the delegates, that's like certain to have people who do not want to be voting for Trump. In that space, so you end up with a lot of people who, you know, like Madison would like very much, be in favor of a rule change. And like you said, the rules are not set in stone and often respond to the will of the people. When there was um, primary reform in the nineteen sixties, that was when voters didn't feel like their views on Vietnam were getting heard by candidates. That that they were voting for candidates who were anti-war and that the party was nominating pro-war candidates and that's essentially where you saw a lot of backlash and that is what catalyzed change it wasn't you know people sitting down and saying like hey maybe we should do this differently out of nowhere it was a very specific political event that led to reform first on the democratic side then on the republican side there is a chance of the scenario that Matt mentioned playing out where, you know, they decide that the rules are not what they're looking for. And it's essentially a return to how conventions worked like 50 years ago, when the parties would figure out who they wanted, and you wouldn't have as much influence at the popular vote. One of the things, you know, that'd be interesting to see in a situation like that is how the Republican base reacts, because obviously, all these people who voted for Trump would be quite furious at a last minute rule change meant to deny Trump the nomination. So something Republican leadership will be thinking about is like, can they keep those voters for um, a Jeb Bush, who has not been shown great at getting people to vote for for him or for a Marco Rubio or for the type of people they prefer? I think that's one of the reasons Republicans would be in a real bind in this situation because the type of candidates they would be preferring and you know that they would likely you know use a rule change to pick are the exact candidates that Republican primary voters. Um, have rejected multiple times so far.
1: He's tanned. He's rested. <laughs> He's ready. Mitt Romney, 2016.
2: It takes off but, his sunglasses. But,
1: but, but to, I think the thing that is really important here and important for people, people to keep in mind is that there's a question of rules and there's a question of norms. And I think that is where the Republican Party really gets into trouble. It was considered, in terms of the prevailing norms of the time, acceptable in the 50s voters were not surprised if at the other end of a convention, a bunch of people they'd never heard of picked someone else than the person who seemed to be the most popular candidate going into it. That was a totally normal, acceptable, credible thing to have happen. That is not something anyone in America believes now. And so it is a case that, particularly in certain situations, like where Donald Trump doesn't have a majority of pledged delegates, uh, doesn't have a majority of the delegates, that It is within the rules for the convention to simply pick someone else. Donald Trump did not win according to the rules, but he did win according to the norms. He did come in with a huge overwhelming lead in delegates going into the convention and according to the ways in which this normally works. And also, by the way, the ways in which it would have worked if it was Marco Rubio with that number of delegates, if it was John Kasich with that number of delegates, if it was Jeb Bush with that number of delegates. In that world, I think people who say that the nomination was stolen from Donald Trump would be making a a legitimate argument that rules were invoked that are not normally invoked, that are not meant to be invoked in this way to to stop Donald Trump. And so I think that one thing that – this speaks to is one, of course, the way that the role of conventions and political conventions in American life has really changed. They used to be really important, really dramatic events that actually did decide who the presidential candidates were gonna be. And now they're these stage-managed efforts that are meant to that are that are meant to promote and increase the voting share for whoever the candidate is who is going to who is the predetermined nominee going into the convention and i think that the republican party at a moment when it is already unpopular among its base is not going to be able to say oh we're breaking those norms and taking this away from donald trump in violation of your clear message to us and i think you see that in two ways one is that I am someone who believes that given the normal ways in which parties intervene in presidential elections, the Republican Party has tried to intervene against Donald Trump. I think a lot of people wanted them to do things that are pretty implausible, like have the whole party say that nobody will support him in a general election, but that's not how parties typically act. But wherever you come down on that, what is true is that the Republican Party did not do everything it could have possibly done. It did not violate prevailing norms in order to unite against Donald Trump. Um, Even right now, they are not really uniting around Ted Cruz or not really uniting around John Kasich even now they are not doing anything that could bring you know any kind of Trumpian hellfire down on them to stop Trump so that I think is one thing that implies they're not going to do this the other is that I think the argument a lot of Republicans are going to make to themselves uh, if not publicly I think elite Republicans are at this point prepared to lose this election I think they look at the candidates they're likely to get, they look at Donald Trump, they look at Ted Cruz, and they don't think these candidates will win. You hear them talking about this pretty publicly. And I think that rather than create a potentially irreparable schism in the party by taking the nomination from Trump and giving it to somebody who will lose even as Trump splits the party – they're just going to give it to Trump with the expectation being that Trump will lose. He will potentially lose badly. And that will be the end of this moment in the Republican Party. That the, the voters will have gotten to try this. They will see what happens. They will see Hillary Clinton come in, potentially win the Senate, nominate her Supreme Court justice. And that will deliver the Republican Party back into their hands as a kind of punishing lesson to the voters of what happens when you so completely reject the establishment's advice. And so between their cowardice and their strategic incentives, I just don't see them trying to to violate existing norms and make themselves the bad guys and, and potentially destroy the party before they can take it back.
0: i well, let me put a, another knife in this, which is that <laughs> I think that the media overperceives the amount of anti-Trump sentiment in the Republican Party. I think that there are a lot of... Um, conservative intellectuals and writers who are very opposed to Donald Trump. And those people are obviously quite salient in the media. It also happens to be the case that a handful in the consultant class of the sort of ringleaders of anti-Trumpism are people who were at the forefront of digital communications and and strategy for Republicans, people like Patrick Ruffini and Liz Mayer, um, who are better known to the media than people who do direct mail. Eric Erickson. Eric Erickson. But those are some of the most prominent Republican consultants, but they're not most of
1: them. And they're not even necessarily the
0: most significant ones. It's
1: It's a sort of a- Oh, I don't agree. Stu Stevens, who is Mitt Romney's campaign manager, he's been a big never Trump guy. Yeah, no, no,
0: no. But he is- He is like out of the game, though, you know, like I just don't think that we know whether like rank and file guys who do shitty, boring house races, you know, because that's the the thing is, is that conventions are not controlled by state parties are not controlled by like the party elite. they're not controlled by like the guys you want to have on your panel discussion that you're you know charging sponsors for they're controlled by like really boring people (laughs) who do the boring work of idaho state republican party kind of work i think that the kind of people who do that stuff are not trump enthusiasts you know they wanted somebody more normal more conventional but you're talking about a lot of like older prosperous-ish, maybe kind of a little cranky and racist white guys going around who just do not have the anti-Trump fanaticism that like the ideologues who write for National Review or the cutting-edge strategists who are running the anti-Trump super PACs really think. And I think it's people who will say, you know, Trump fair enough. Like that's that's what the voters did. That's that's what we're getting. And also if you you know if you look at the history of primaries in the United States, it's really, really rare. There's really only one time that the convention sort of went against the expressed will of the voters in primaries, and that was in 1968. And the Democratic Party in 1968 had the pretty good excuse that the guy who had won the primaries was literally dead. <laughs> Um so you know they couldn't pick him. I think the sentiment among democratic activists was that it should have gone to an anti-war candidate because between Kennedy and McCarthy there was clearly an anti-war majority in those primary wins and they assigned it to a pro-war candidate. But even there, right, is not a precedent for taking the nomination away from bobby kennedy and giving it to humphrey all these other people even in times when the primaries were not decisive or binding in the 50s but the nominees were the people who won the primaries you know before that there were no primaries at at all really you have to go all the way 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 back to the 1924 War Democratic contest to have an example of a guy who won a bunch of primaries, William McAdoo, or McAdoo, and who proved uh, unacceptable. He was actually sort of a, a Trump-like guy. His his coalition was the, the Ku Klux Klan, but also um, the Jewish guy who was the Democratic Party's big donor at the time, Bernard Baruch. But you know, he was he was uh, unacceptable to like Catholics and whatever. Didn't get the nomination. But he, he, the upshot of this was the worst general election performance that any party has ever mounted. So I think Republicans would ask themselves, because like, one of the big problems with nominating Trump is that it seems like he will lose the election. But it seems like you will definitely lose the election if you take the nomination away from Trump after he won the primaries, give it to someone who didn't even mount a campaign. I mean, it seems unlikely to me that Paul Ryan would want to give up his speakership for a probably doomed illegitimately acquired presidential right. nomination so then it's it's a real question of like who do you go to and like people will be really upset and like there's just no as you said Ezra it's like there's worse things than losing the election like Republicans have lost the last two they won a bunch of down-ballot elections, like, all these guys are alive and well, um, and they can survive losing with Trump. It's not clear that they can survive some, like, effort to defy the voters and prompt civil war.
1: I think that's right. This has been another fine episode of The Weeds, Boxes <laughs> podcast on the Panoply Network. Thank you to our producer, A.C. Valdez, to my co-host, Matt Iglesias, and Sarah Cliff. Uh, we will be back next week, I believe.
2: Yes, every week. Everywhere. We're here.
1: It's gonna be great. There it is.